0: So I reiterate here, the bell
1: is dead.
2: What's up? This is Ho Ho Hong Kong. I'm Andy Curtin. I'm here with Vivek Mababani.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Over here.
2: Where do people find you online, you can buddy? You find
0: me at Funny Vivek. Sometimes with letter M. If you're in a good mood, type it twice. It doesn't matter. It's still me.
2: Yeah, you can find me at Andy Curtin on all of the usual platforms. And uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe. Uh, and we have a patreon account patreon.com/ hoho pod uh, if we get 10 more patreons we'll be upgrading my microphone your uh, microphone it depends on who's who's talking more this this episode yeah yeah, yeah okay <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go with me Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, now today's guest I have to say a huge thank you to Cassie Thomas for uh, getting us connected uh, with Guy Shearer guy how are you doing it's
1: I'm fine thank you yes here we are in Saigon, in a quiet little park away from the of Sai Kung.
2: This is not normally where we record the podcast. I'll be honest <laughs> yeah. with you; it's the first time in the Sai Kung Park. Um, but Guy was a British police officer in Hong Kong from 1967 to 1997. Which already people are listening, anyone is wow. Going, all right, I mean, I was still like a, <laughs> like a like a protein back then. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not what I would think of. But <laughs> yeah. all right,
0: reincarnation. now's another life. Let's go on.
2: So, we, you have so many great stories, and I know because I've read your book, Accidental Prawn, which, if you want a good book about Hong Kong, it's, fat, it's, it's awesome. Um, Accidental Prawn is the name of the
1: book. On sale in all the good bookshops.
2: Yeah. Is it, where, is, where, where are you? Bookazine, where to pick up the book? Bookazine
1: and uh, Kelly and Walsh Hong Kong Book Center. That's it, I think, at the moment. Oh, you can also pick up a copy at the Green Hub, the old typo police station.
2: Yeah. Ah. I'm usually hanging at the old typo police station. That's my uh-huh.
1: regular. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the really old not. one is fine.
2: <laughs> so I, 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 there's a lot of stuff I want to get into. With you, But, but in a, sort of a, a, a briefer introduction, like how did you end up in Hong Kong? Like what got you out here?
1: Well, I was doing uh, six form studies in uh, a public school in the UK. Um, and uh, I, I was in the science stream and I plan to become a veterinary surgeon. So I managed to scrape a, a place at uh, Edinburgh University, but it was seven years and I was already put off studying and um, a friend of mine had, had uh, managed to do voluntary service overseas um, and I thought, oh, I'll apply for that. And they accepted me.
2: Is that specifically police service? Oh, no,
1: a- nothing to do with the police whatsoever. Oh, well, this is Borneo, no. right? Voluntary service overseas was started in 1958 as a way of getting um, school leavers uh, to go and do something useful overseas, uh, especially in Commonwealth countries, before they went on to university or, or some other career. And um, in fact, it started in Sarawak in Borneo in 1958. And that's uh, where they sent me. And I was sent to teach in a government uh, secondary school in the second Largest town in Sarawak called Miri.
2: And how much did that just explode your, 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 your well, understanding of the world and what else is out there? Well,
1: exactly. I'd, uh, I think I'd only been uh, as far as Norway as a, as a child at the age of something like nine years old and, uh, and the Channel Islands when I was 15, and that, that's about it, you know. Uh, so flying out to uh, Kuching. Uh, by way of all kinds of exotic places. You had um, to stop.
2: Like I remember you, you yeah. stopped like five times to get there, right? Uh, that's
1: right, yes. Uh, it was a BOAC uh, flight, and um, we stopped in all kinds of places. I remember we, I think it was uh, Damascus. We arrived in the middle of the night. It was about um, 40 degrees or something in, in the middle of the night. Probably looked better then um, than it does now. In 1967, <laughs> there were all kinds of odd things going on, and they, they loaded us off the plane, and and soldiers marched us into a Nissan hut um, while the plane was refueled. Um, and that was your was, first trip. There was no duty-free. <laughs> 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 and we wondered, <laughs> like you, buy you know, bottle of alcohol whether we were me? under arrest. So um, <laughs> You were under arrest? No, no. We wondered if we were. We don't know what the hell Oh, was yeah. Going they on.
2: wouldn't explain what's going on. Yeah. Right.
1: And then in another place. Oh, we landed in Colombo in um, what was then called Ceylon, right? Sri Lanka. And we were sitting outside uh, on a, uh, at a little table um, getting some refreshment, again, while the plane was being refueled. And a whole bunch of Ceylonese uh, kids on the other side of the, the fence were screaming and shouting. I think because they thought we were the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> we all had long hair, and of course, I had a rather long nose.
0: Do <laughs> <laughs> you kind of enjoy that? You're like, yes, I am. I, I would like people to think I was the Beatles at least once in my life. Yeah, even there if it's nice. Ringo star, I'll take it. Fine, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'll, even, I'll, I'll take
2: George Harrison.
1: <laughs> then, of course, we uh, landed in Singapore, but we were, were late landing because of a thunderstorm uh, in over Kuala Lumpur. And uh, we missed our connecting flight to Kuching. So um, the B- British BOAC quite routinely stuck us in the Raffles Hotel.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm fascinated about that because when I go to Singapore and see raffles, I know that it's all done up and new, but you, I do feel like I'm seeing what uh, Singapore of old. Is that yeah. fair?
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful old building with a lot of history, the Somerset Maum and uh, the long bar and the and the Singapore sling and all of that. And we were in the two, two rooms. There were, uh, there were four of us and we were in two rooms. Uh, right on this garden, and uh, we missed the the dinner and we were thrown out of the dining room because uh, <laughs> they, they were they were going to charge us right yeah. it was uh, and I said oh, we 've got to get out of here we can 't afford this, so we had to leave that and we got sandwiches next morning. We rang the British council and they said, "Oh, where are you raffles hotel what you can 't stay there Then they sent a van round for us. And they put us in the Siemens rest room, restaurant. Yes,
2: and it was uh, didn't yeah. have the f- the the uh, swan towel folded on the bed. No, like <laughs> they, yeah, did it uh,
1: <laughs> they had it was quite ramshackle. It had uh, wooden screens and uh, ceiling fans. And have
2: you been much? Have you been back to Singapore s- much since then? Oh yeah, my, do, you, do you, can you visualize how different it is from that? Oh,
1: time? enormously different. I mean, the, the what I think one of the biggest differences. Is that in 65 the the Singapore River was a filthy quagmire uh, jam full of sampans and, uh, and a lot of trading going on uh, and of course now it's not it's a, a clean pristine river and there's none of that going on. but the, um, the Singapore government and the, uh, acknowledges its its history and makes and there are interesting statues in that area, which depict the way it used to be.
2: I love that when you go to the Singapore Muse- History Museum, it says that their goal was to be the
1: Liverpool of the East. <laughs>
2: now which I like guess at the time, Liverpool was a very important, you know, uh, uh, shipping...
1: I don't Poor. remember Singapore producing any, any hot rock bands, but um, <laughs> <Yeah>. otherwise, maybe.
2: <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it was more folk. But it's funny because, you know, Singapore is, I, I, I think, a, a little bit nicer than Liverpool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Certainly warmer. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, so just jumping into Hong Kong, uh, you know, y- were you, you were hired as a police officer before coming to Hong Kong, I
1: right? I um, had always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a police officer. Uh, I'd looked at the the army, and I thought, you know, if there was nothing going on at the time, in respect of wars or Northern Ireland, and I thought, you know, you join the British Army, and you'll you'll just be training, you know, what will you really be doing? And I thought, you know, you become a police officer, you're you're doing practical work, and hopefully you're, you know, used to the community, doing something interesting, maybe exciting and certainly useful so i um, when i came back from sarawak to birmingham which is my near my where i lived i wandered into the birmingham city police and they, they really gave me the brush off they said well basically you're too short you know you're you're short a couple of <laughs> yeah um, but i i think that they didn't really feel uh, comfortable with me, my background, perhaps I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's, it's kind of hard disciplining people when you have to look up. You're like, you're "Hey,
2: that's short. <laughs> what are you well, doing I, about? That's well, what
1: well mean. like giants." Yeah, in those uh, minimum height was five foot eight, and I was um, a third of an inch short. I think that was uh, good enough for them. Um, and I maybe I'm just sure yeah. So I then <laughs> uh, I went down to London. I saw some special recruitment officer, and he said, "Well, these six forces are really hard up. You could write to them." And I said, well, what's going on overseas? He said, oh, well, you could go around to the Crown agents. And uh, I walked into the Crown agents and said, what have you got? And they said, oh, Hong Kong or I think it was Bermuda. It might have been the Bahamas. I can't remember which. But they said, oh, if you go to Hong Kong, you'll be a probationary inspector. Your pay will be better than if you go to the Bahamas. And Can I thought, oh, Hong Kong, not very far from Sarawak I rather like that idea right well one thing I want to ask you is because
2: like, you're a pretty passionate lover of Hong Kong uh it seems to me did you at, even at Sarawak you you sort of discovered that Asia had something that really fascinated you you know really caught your eye is that fair
1: oh yes indeed I mean Sarawak uh had a a very very uh interesting mix of of people right so you had uh Chinese Malay's And then you had all the indigenous groups uh, who were all fascinating. The school that I taught in had a whole cross-section of those, boys and girls, all thrown into one class, 30 in a class, all getting on really well. Uh, Standard of English was very high. Um, And um, when uh, school holidays came around, I did my very best to get as far upriver into the Ulu as I could. But... At that time, the, what was called the Confrontasi, uh, a war was going on between Malaysia and Indonesia. Indonesia was trying to invade uh, the uh, Sabah, British North Borneo, Sarawak, and Brunei um, from Kalimantan, which is uh, east, the largest part of Borneo. Did you feel a danger
2: at all? No.
1: <laughs> um, but uh, it was. Uh, that just <laughs> off in the face? There of were signs dangerous of activity. About activity. I'm hearing it, <laughs> and I'm like, uh,
0: this is like your kind of initial time in Asia, and you're like calm about like, it. I'll okay. go where the war is. That yeah. seems safe.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, the, the, the Malaysians uh, had a hell of a lot of help from Australians, New Zealanders, and the Brits, of course, and uh, they saw off the, the problem. It's a f- sort of forgotten, undeclared war called the Confrontasi. That's so, a great name, confrontazi, man. Yeah. I
0: could do that with my girlfriend next time.
1: We're having a
2: confrontazi. Yeah. It's an
0: undeclared war between us. Sounds adorable. Uh,
2: <laughs> uh, we're gonna have a confrontazi uh, yeah. again, aren't we? Like, like, are there people dying? It's confrontazi. <laughs> it sounds like you know. Sounds <laughs> like we can't decide on what the hors d'oeuvre should be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have one confront confrontazi, please. So you you enlisted as a probationary inspector. Yeah, that's right. Came uh, out here. How do you remember? You must have landed at Kaitak.
1: Yep, we landed at Kai Tak, um, and uh, we were given a fair bit to drink by a welcoming party of existing recruits, I think, then loaded into the back of Bedford lorries <laughs> um, and uh, carted over on the ferry, Cross Harbour Ferry. No tunnels in those days. And up Stubbs Road and down the other side um, to um, Wong Chuk Hang, the police training school. Ah. Oh. Now in those days it was um, surrounded by uh, market gardens and you know paddy fields and uh, it was very semi-rural.
0: Is that the one right next to Ocean Park right
1: now? That's correct. Oh, yeah.
0: this is bizarre. So when you go oh, to Ocean Park, it's so now, busy now. It was yeah. such a
2: dense. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, know, so there was none of that there yeah. then. And, yeah. yeah. Um, which we'll makes sense. I mean, if you're going to have people practice gunshots and everything, you want to be away from, from sure. where people are.
1: We were, we, were, we were given a welcome, but it was a very sort of lukewarm, uh, what, do you, what do you call it now, razzing or something? Ra- uh,
2: raising? Yeah, they were you like trying to? Because you did it as well.
1: Well, we did it. We did a far better job. I yeah.
2: Think. <laughs> so, so just um, so you know, like they, when they get the new recruits <laughs> in, they just try to freak them all out. Oh, so what's the word? Uh, raising,
1: raising, oh, uh, raising, or, yeah, raising yeah. or whatever.
2: Yeah, so raising is what they do. Like when you go to like an American fraternity and they bring uh-huh. them in and take their clothes yeah. off. Oh yeah, that's what happens yeah. when I went to university yeah. as well. Yeah, that's what they're doing. Really? So, like,
1: yeah. Our, our method was basically to grab everybody off the, the trucks and scare the shit out of them, yeah. if I can say that. And um, I, my contribution to that was to go for one of my very long runs This would, and come back utterly exhausted and be yelled at by uh, a colleague of mine pretending to be a chief inspector. Get your butt up here, shut sure, up! you know. And then I was paraded in front of these raw recruits with a... With hardly any hair. Did you get your hair cut? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, that'll teach you to get your hair cut. Otherwise, it'll be another 15-mile run, Mr. Shira. Get lost, you know. And Any any idea that they thought this might be a, a wind-up holiday. disappeared. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and then <laughs> yeah. our Canadian guy was playing the doctor, and he comes in wearing a white coat and says, right, sorry, Chief Inspector, but the, the lab's not available. We'll have to um, do the do the injections over in B block or something, <laughs> and by that time they'd been told to take their trousers off in in, <laughs> in preparation for a jab for some berry berry or something like this. <laughs> and, uh, right, no time to put your trousers on by the front double march, and we doubled them out of the building across what was With virtually no an open road uh, into B block, which in in fact B block was the mess, and uh, but it was very funny watching people. Trying to hold on to their tackle, um, if they were wearing uh, the funny thing sort of is, yeah while this is going on, Yeah, their
0: parents are probably thinking my my child's a police. He's going to be in the police force. You're like, no, <laughs> look at what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: look at what they <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no phones back then. I, man. I know. Nobody I was, was saying, saying if anything. Only
0: there was the social media. Oh man. Yeah. Um, so
1: um, but it, I think in yeah we had um a Chinese commandant uh Fong Yip Fai. He was a great bloke. Um, he had a lot of medals in the Second World War and that sort kind of thing. And um, I, I believe a previous uh, occasion, um, they dressed up one of their local uh, colleagues and pretended he was the commandant <laughs> and who couldn't speak any English and then harangued them all in Cantonese. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they were left nonplussed. And, and then, unfortunately, the real commandant then walked into the mess <laughs> And they all turned around and (laughs) gave him the finger to get lost.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And
2: you're all like, no, 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 no. no, You will actually have a tough time. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, How? So, coming in at 1967 is an interesting time because at that point, corruption was pretty severe in the police force, right?
1: Well, of course, unfortunately, we had no knowledge of that. And while we were still at the training school, we were plunged into what was called the confrontation. Uh, A spillover, not the (laughs) confrontation, but it was called the confrontation. It was a spillover from the Cultural Revolution in China and uh, it was a left-wing insurrection, basically. Mm. And so... um, So people from the mainland coming over the border and Yeah, so we were doing that for over a year. Uh, f- fighting uh, ultimately what was local terrorism with bombs, killing, and made bombs. killing and maybe maiming, maiming people. Yeah. Um, and um, so there was no real policing, no no normal policing. And, and it I, wasn't I until after that was over in '68 that uh, I began to realise that perhaps all was not as it seemed. Uh, patrolling round the streets of North Point, and well, t- two
2: little sl- anecdotes that I just want to attach to that, which I picked up from the book, was this: I this where you ha- they had to use bamboo poles to set off these IEDs that were left in the street, and there was one horrible story where two little kids found a bag and opened it, and the, both of them died. You know, oh. there was real real terrorism going on in the streets.
1: That's correct. Yes, um, we had um, our own bomb disposal officer. But we had a lot of help from the British Army, technical, Army technical officers who were p- deployed in teams. Uh, one technical officer and police officers to help him cordon the scene and all of that. But it was they were still overwhelmed at points. There were a lot of what we called hoax bombs. They would make up a package, write on it, comrades keep clear, and plant them. In the middle of the road or the tram tracks, you know, places like that, and they usually have to be treated as the real thing. So, um, uh, but a large percentage of them were real, and caused deaths and injuries. As you say, the the worst example were were these two little children who played with a package in uh, a back street leading to a school in, in North Point. Uh, that was absolutely terrible. Um, but as a as a patrol officer, if you came across something and you thought, well, no, that's, that's really too small to be a real IED. So, you know, I'd find a bamboo pole and stand sideways behind a lamppost and poke it if it didn't go off then, then that was fine well because
2: also it would have been a good, um, big use of resources and affecting you know traffic and everything else to to class to say we have a potential IED like, let's get the team in right
1: you had you had to exercise some common sense uh, unfortunately there were a couple of instances where police officers um, uh, thought they could deal with something which is much larger you know uh a carrier bag or something like, or a, or a school bag, uh, and they, they tried to deal with it using a piece of string or something, and it exploded and killed them and killed other people. So, yeah.
2: And that's what led to the ban on fireworks in Hong Kong.
1: That's right. Well, initially they were making um, IEDs out of uh, the black powder from fireworks, Yeah. Mm. so that uh, they stopped. So the moral of this lesson right. is
0: if... There's like a little bag on the street. Don't touch it. None of yeah. it says
1: only for
2: comrades, comrades stay, stay away. clear or whatever. <laughs> yeah.
0: So yeah. now I know what to do. That's the only Cantonese This is what I'm actually going to put on my bag from now on. <laughs> People just don't steal my stuff. <laughs> All my valuables they're Just comrades, stay away. That's right. <laughs> actually brilliant. Perfect security over there.
1: <laughs> and my, I'll have a bag my, to uh, next to it. My daughter went to uh, university in Birmingham. And f- unfortunately, her bag was offloaded one stop before she was supposed to get off. <laughs> and uh, the police came along and blew it up. So welcome to the UK. Wow. I was in Charles
2: de Gaulle in Paris with my brother and there was a lot of screaming and everything standing around and there's this bag sitting there and they've brought in the bomb squad to set it off and everyone's standing there watching. Yeah, and I think like, my brother' deal. I'm like, if that's a bomb, yeah, we don't want to be standing here. We would we walk in the other direction. Yeah, and it was, yeah, and it, the explosion to set it off went off, um, but thankfully there wasn't actually. It was just someone's makeup or something, you sh- I think. You sure,
0: you sure those were bombs and not like bad breakups where the boyfriend's trying to get rid of a girlfriend's belongings? Like, I'm going to blow that stuff up in the street. It was definitely
2: <laughs> some sort of confrontasi. No yeah. question about it.
0: <laughs> definitely the confrontasi happening over there.
2: Um, <laughs> now, another thing that I wish we could talk to you about for five hours, honestly, is the Kowloon Walled City. Aha. Uh-huh. So people, if you don't know about the Kowloon Walled City, it was... We actually, can you tell
1: us what it was? The Kowloon Walled City was originally... Um, a walled city with a, a Chinese magistrate and a contingent of Chinese troops. And it was the center of administration for the general Hong Kong area, right? And when the British uh, got the um, secession of Kowloon, of oh, sorry, Hong Kong and, and Kowloon up to Boundary Street, uh, that was initially excluded. And the Chinese had the right to march in and out of there to a, um, a stone pier, which in fact they... So it was almost like they, an embassy situation? They discovered that recently. When I say recently, two or three years ago, they found that uh, when they were excavating the area for the new MTR tunnel or something like that. Anyway, uh, but I think a year later, the British decided that that wasn't working and, um, and it was absorbed as far as the British was concerned into uh, Kowloon. Uh, the Chinese always said well no it wasn't so it it developed into um, the the Japanese pulled down the wall and used it to build the airport Um, uh, and after the war it became a hotbed of vice and drugs and uh, all kinds of odd activities including illegal dentists you know if you wanted a cheap job on your teeth you could go to the wall sit pick up some opium and sit in an alleyway and get your teeth done
2: it was also astoundingly dense as well right i think it might have been the densest living conditions on earth
1: oh i yes i would agree i mean the the, the building regulations were totally ignored as well um so, so the, there, there were very built. very narrow alleyways Probably up to oh I don't know maybe ten stories maximum, but the alleyways were wet, pipes burst, pipes, um, wires. Uh, You could hardly see the sky. Yeah, it was very very Dickensian, and um, had a had a dreadful reputation. Um, And the police, as far as the police was concerned, I was there in 1974. And we, we didn't patrol it as a normal beat, which would have been one constable during the daylight and two during the darkness. Uh, this was a sergeant and two or three constables. Because they might get overwhelmed. 24 hours. Yeah. 24 hours. Um, and um, yeah, I had um, several interesting escapades in the walled city while I was there. I yeah.
2: know you raided a couple of opium dens in there.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: Did you kick the door down or push the door?
1: We, we, my, one of my sergeants got some information about an opium den. It was midwinter. It was very, very cold. And we, sur- we put in a cordon uh, and, and hid there, hoping that somebody would, a customer would come and either go in or go out. Nothing happened. So we had to ring the bell in the end. And um, <laughs> That old <but> chestnut. Th- <laughs> yeah. This old bloke who was, the, in fact, the divan keeper came down. But he'd obviously rung an alarm bell and the the smokers were on, I think, the third floor and they started jumping from one building to another.
2: But this seemed like a common thing with opium raids is that people would start popping out the windows, right?
1: Well, yeah, but it, this was pretty spectacular. But one bloke didn't make it and landed at my feet <laughs> and um, and I arrested him. And the the other police rushed in and they caught about four smokers who were too far gone on the opium to even consider escaping Um, and the old man Um, and then um, a a constable at the bank said oh I saw a woman on the first floor get up switch the lights on hide something behind a pillar it seemed and then shut the lights off so we, we raided her place too and I found a large quantity of prepared opium hidden in a cavity behind a mirror on the wall And uh, she was the one running the place, but we couldn't link the two. Uh, She didn't have the keys for the divan upstairs or vice versa. uh, So we just charged them separately. One was the opium divan, and she was possession of dangerous drugs for trafficking. You know, both the same maximum sentence of life if it was in the high court but, but did, uh,
0: did did she did she have any look like when you see her you're like yeah she's definitely up to no good like or did she have that comical curl in her hair mm, smoking look her. like a nice lady <laughs> yeah nice lady real like, quiet type <laughs>
1: exactly yeah i can't really remember she 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 didn't kick up any great fuss because, like, whenever I but what happened after that was very interesting because we got them back to the station they were charged um, and, and it seemed as if um, when they got to court the next day, she abandoned the old guy. Uh, <laughs> and she paid for herself to for, to get court bail and refused to pay for him. Maybe she was annoyed that he'd answered the door or something. I don't know. And he went off to Leichicock Remand Centre, where he was asked by the Correctional Services, then known as the Prisons Department, have you got any complaints to make? And he said, Yeah. That bloody inspector in in Cowland City let the woman go and I'm locked up here. So they then called in the ICAC. Which and is uh, the, <laughs> the corruption Yeah, yeah.
0: right? Independent council, yeah, yeah. ice cream
1: yeah. and coffee or interfering <laughs> with Chinese ancient, ancient customs. Um, <laughs> or, anyway, so I, I was then... I like interfering that. with ancient <laughs> Chinese customs <laughs> is the best. Sure. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so uh, I was told to expect um, the presence of ICOC in the courtroom when the case was being heard, right? So I turned up there. And sure enough, there were a couple of blokes in suits at the back who were avoiding eye contact. And I got in the witness box to give evidence against the old guy. And sure enough, he cross-examined me and said, what did you do with the woman? And I played along with this for a while and watched these two guys scribbling away in their notebooks at the back. I said, what woman? He said, the (laughs) woman you arrested. I I said, your worship, we didn't arrest any woman in connection with this opium divan case. Uh, oh you're referring to the woman we arrested downstairs is yes, the
2: because you couldn't connect we the cases. charged
1: her separately and here is the notice to witness for her court case tomorrow.
0: did you love watching him lose his mind when you were like oh, you know which woman I'm
1: talking about you're like boy nah, nah, nah. well obviously he was still unhappy about the fact that he'd been abandoned by her <laughs> but these two guys from the ICAC were sitting at the back you know, with their eyes wide open. And um, as we passed them, as we left the court, they asked my sergeant, uh, could could we have details of that case, please? And I gave him a copy. I said, I brought a copy for you. Here you are.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So that's an interesting segue, though, because the ICAC was a very big deal, right? Like corruption was pretty rampant all throughout the city. The police were very openly corrupt on many fronts. Were you... 1967 was the ICAC in operation at that point. Oh no,
1: no, the police had an anti-corruption branch. They didn't. Um, they didn't. Um, I don't think get many cases. When I was in the commercial crime office, I got a very interesting conspiracy to defraud the Hong Kong government case, and they, the anti-corruption branch, tried to pinch it off us because they argued that the Hong Kong telephone company, who were the victims. Uh, came under their remit, but we didn't let them have it. Um, the under- David Trench, the governor, uh, started the process of introducing new legislation, which was introduced when Murray McLehose took over. And the Hong Kong Police Anti-Corruption Branch arrested Godber, chief superintendent, and two or three other superintendents. They'd started the process of using the new law, which had a lot more teeth than the old one. Uh, but, but because Godmer escaped to the UK and had to be extradited, they had a commission of inquiry, and then the ICAC was set up. But I, I still feel that if that hadn't happened, the police anti-corruption branch might have done a better job because um, the, the rest of the Hong Kong government was hardly touched. And yet there was definitely corruption in other departments uh, of all kinds. Um, Did you see a
2: lot of corruption? Did you see much yourself?
1: Um, it You knew about it, but I, <laughs> I tended to uh, upset people and arrest the wrong people. And I was very quickly shuffled off into the commercial crime office in my only in my second year of service, and um, so um, it was. Uh, and I yeah, I, I suppose I avoided any direct contact because of that.
0: Do you remember like the first cor- corrupt act that you witnessed? Like the first thing you're like, wait, something's not right. This yeah,
2: like, like the mo- like you come in, you're like, okay,
0: police, and you're like, wait a second, what was that? Also, oh, oh, I love the
2: idea that like you've got were new recruits, n- naked, marching in the outside, and then, you, but then you see someone I, corrupt. You're like, "Well, well that's I think some uh, disrepute to the force." <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> the they first, can take their
0: pants off, the pants The
1: first time I actually saw something, I think, was um, um, during the confrontation. It was it, it it stepped up in different stages, and one stage was where the they instituted transport strikes. And um, as is the want in Hong Kong, the the private sector stepped in rapidly to supply um, public transport. Uh, We had things called dual-purpose vans in those days, which mainly plied in the new territories between villages. They were allowed to carry passengers and they carried goods. Um, And they all came down to the urban area and started um, charging people. Uh, for for journeys, you know, um, but I I remember seeing a traffic police officer at the Star Ferry with his hand out collecting a bribe off every single dual purpose van that passed through the Star Ferry. Yeah,
0: wow, that's pretty. That's pretty but cool. by
1: by the time, let me see now, 1979, it was it was all over, and from that time on. It was a very, very healthy organization, and uh, it was uh, very refreshing, yeah.
2: I mean, Mike Rouser, we talked about, he was on the ICAC, and he said that, that maybe a few people got away with crimes, maybe a few people were very harshly dealt with, but a, just such a massive percentage of police turned it around, uh, you know. And I think there was yeah, an amnesty as well, right? There was an amnesty for previous crimes?
1: Yeah, the perception within the police force was that the ICAC's tactics were totally unfair and unnecessary. They would descend on a on a division and arrest everybody and then try to get uh, police officers to um, give evidence against their, their colleagues. So they rounded up dozens of innocent people just to get to a few. So this caused um, widespread discontent, and it ended up with a a march, um, a protest outside police headquarters. And they then marched down to ICAC headquarters, and there was a, a scuffle outside the uh, uh, the offices. And uh, I think a glass door got broken. Um, but um, the governor was very concerned about all this and uh, decided— It was McElhose at that yeah, time? Yeah. Uh, He decided that enough was enough and um, gave an amnesty. Um, Um,
2: So one other thing that, just to jump around here a little bit, because you have so many things (laughs) I want to tap into, but you had a brief career in Special Branch. What is Special Branch?
1: Special Branch is uh, a British institution operated in all um, British uh, uh, territories and dependencies and, of course, back in the UK. It had its origins, I think, with the with the problems with uh, the Irish ter- uh, terrorism way back when. Uh, so it's an internal security organization. But in Hong Kong, it was also uh, an intelligence organization as well as um, uh, domestic um, security. So um, quite a large organization, and um, uh, it kept tabs on left-wing and right-wing uh, Communist and KMT, Ko Min Tang. The Komintang were. Do they have a presence down here? Oh yeah, they were always trying to cause trouble in Hong Kong. You know, so they that uh, um, there were different uh, sections within the Special Branch which dealt with different things, and uh, but the two major ones were the left and the right wing. Uh, I didn't spend uh, very long there. I think I wish I'd, that I had been able to, but my. Health caught up with me, and I was told that I needed to go to the New Territories to get fresh air, which oh.
2: which changed your life coming out here, right? Or did you already have a relationship with New Territories at that? No, point? You I live um, in the New Territories. I now.
1: was uh, seduced by the photographs on the pamphlet that I was issued before I turned up in Hong Kong, of which the, were new the territories. rural <laughs> NT policing. I really wished that I could have done that, uh, but they wouldn't post me to the new territories. They posted me to, to Bayview in Kong Island. But eventually I did end up in the new territories. Uh, to where get fresh air. That was, that was a yeah, well, that was, yeah. I mean, fresher
0: air. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no, fresher, fresher air. Fresh air. <laughs> well, and certainly in well, those there
1: days. Much pollution we didn't in have, those days? We didn't have, no. No, we didn't. Can you remember,
2: they mustn't have had all of the reclamation that they've had now. Because so much of Hong Kong Island, in particular, is reclaimed land. I mean, it's astounding when you see how much of it was water before.
1: The um, the new territories was was, um, leased by the British as a as a as a physical buffer against um, any threat of um, invasion by Japan or Russia or whatever at that time. So it was a ninety-nine year lease. But I couldn't understand that. What protection is it? Just having it's just a, a physical buffer, yeah, and the they and they, <laughs> they were determined not to interfere in any any in any way with the way of life of the new territories. Um, but then, of course, approaching ninety seven, um, the private sector got nervous, uh, and also we needed to be able to expand. So. Uh, the British talked to the Chinese and the Chinese said, yeah, go ahead and develop it. So they then built all these new towns, uh, which have been very, very successful. Yeah. Um, but uh, when I was there, of course, we didn't, we didn't have much of that at all. And I was… Um, Just villages, right? surrounding the village patrol unit, which used to be called the village penetration patrol a very sort of 50s um name which caused some amusement because these police officers would go on four uh, four man four day patrols and they'd stay over in villages and it seems that quite a few of them formed liaisons with Funny village penetrations. Ladies. <laughs> um to put job <laughs> So, the, the designation of the unit was um, a little bit uh, <laughs> thought, a little bit Wrongfully encouraging. Unfortunate, yes. Did you
2: stop penetrating
0: the <laughs> the village's place? Yeah, it's in my job title. <laughs> I'm trying to do my job, please. Just do my job, a little buddy. A less noise, and let me know if there's anyone else you're going to introduce me to.
1: So, uh, yeah, we were the village patrol unit. So
0: Okay, so let me ask you this. Back then, were there... Okay, so... One of the things I like to the bones I like to pick with especially police is the the uh, patrolling on the streets, checking people and stuff like that. Back then, were there a lot of let's say uh, random
2: checks that people uh, patrolling streets and kind well, of stuff? Can, can, can I tap and uh, maybe a bit of a segue into this question that I know he wants to ask? How much <laughs> I I would imagine that being a police officer casing people, looking at people, and thinking. What are they up to? What's going on? That's like a huge part of the job, right? It's, it's built into the psyche. Is that a fair statement?
1: Um, I, um, I, I, ten, I seem to have a little bit of a nose for suspicion. Um, I quite <coughs> often... <Vivek. laughs> yeah, Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: react- I have a very big nose of suspicion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I quite often <laughs> reacted to something I saw and got lucky quite often. And um, I think that... The trick is that um, you, if you observe something which you think is a suspicious, you need to follow up on it, either with a stop and question or a stop and search. But it's very easy, I think, for you to, to uh, sort of give up on that and because you, you're not often successful. But I always thought, yeah, you know, if I'm suspicious, I'll do something about it. And, uh, and it works. And, of course, if you're patrolling at nighttime, um, then I think there's a much greater chance of getting lucky, as it were, because most of your good and honest people perhaps are already abed. <laughs> and it's only the bad guys who are wandering the streets at night.
0: So, so during police, police training camp there, there, there isn't like, you know, look at this photo. This is a prime default example of this person is something you want to stop on the streets. Because I have a feeling, I really do have a feeling that if I know anyone who's trained for, to be a police, please check if they have it in the textbook and they've taken my picture in it. Because for some reason, like, can you tell me, like, what about me is... You. Yeah, okay, there Why you Why might you people
1: stupid. stop you and <laughs> question you? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, when I say what about me, it you anything you? to do with the fact that you look a little bit... Like Osama Bin Laden.
0: (laughs) 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 Okay, just because I'm holding a mic now with a little goatee on my face, I would like to remind all our audience (laughs) that he is now in the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, uh, like I don't know
2: why you w- chose to wear a turban for this uh, <laughs> recording.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I'm losing my hair already. I'm trying to let you know I'm not nowhere close to that guy. <laughs> okay, so Osama bin Laden. Okay, let me ask this: What can I do about me <laughs> that can improve <laughs> my situation? How much facial surgery
2: does he need? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, visually, what like what would you say I could do what, to? What, maybe... what role did race play in stopping people?
1: Oh, I don't think it plays any any role at all. I mean, certainly in Hong Kong. 99% of people are are Chinese so it doesn't apply does it um, I think um, yeah doesn't,
2: doesn't <laughs> I think apply. Vivek's experience might contrast yeah. so,
1: so in in my
0: life walking down the street all the different races I'm amongst I seem to be the one that's winning this particular race in the competition so I okay so back then it was basically just general patrolling and everything, and just uh, looking at the city. Were there any standout points that you remember you were there looking at something suspicious and like I'm going to check into that and find out? well, I was so wrong about this. Do you remember any story
2: like that? Yeah. When did you get it, any uh, notable cases of getting it wrong? Yeah, your completely. Sense? You're like, whoa, this is getting it wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah. you thought like, you saw yeah.
2: something and it wasn't something. Yeah, you followed up and
0: they were like, whoa, well, okay, kid, this is not right. Anything? You were that good.
1: I don't remember. I mean <laughs> wow! if you, if you stop and you stop and question somebody and you stop and search something and there's nothing there, you say, Well, thank you very we, much.
0: We just had forty minutes of pure crystal clean uh, much, great memory I, stories you know, and quite I'm like, <laughs>
1: honestly, you know, I didn't put it in my book. So I don't I don't remember anything specifically like that, no. Uh. Um, no. The good Good cases, yes, I remember that.
2: There was one story, which I know is not your story, that you did tell in the book that I loved, and it was the guy who had a beer on the front of the ship he was the captain of. And so this this bloke sat down on the hull of the ship to have a beer, and it's hit a wave, and he's gone off the side.
1: This is the famous Charlie Fisher story. Um, He was a very, very capable Marine police officer. Uh, uh, he sadly passed away only about a year ago. Uh, he won a governor's commendation for saving his vessel, during a number ten signal when the the vessel broke free from its moorings. Uh, he saved the vessel and his crew, but um, he enjoyed his San Miguel. And the story goes that uh, he was sailing off in um, launch number one, which is a a very large, or at the time it was a very large. A vessel capable of ocean going, and he was on the stern of the ship, uh, having a, a, a San Miguel. one or two bottles of San Miguel, and um, it hit a large wave, and he parted company with the launch, <laughs> <laughs> and I which love sailed on through <laughs> the harbour, past Green Island, and there he was in the harbour, suddenly sober. So he um, saw the lights of Green Island and he swam to Green Island. When he got there, Green Island was uh, an ammunition depot.
0: That's Kennedy Town right? And it was there. Yeah, just off yeah. there. Yeah. It was
1: guarded by police officers from Marine Marine Division, I'm sure. Anyway, he he managed to wake them all up. <laughs> and he said um I'm the commander of launch number one. Oh, yeah, sure you are, you know. Anyway, he convinced them of his credentials and, and persuaded them to let him use the radio. So he then called launch number one. Now, I don't know whether you have a helper at home, but, you know, you call home perhaps and say, uh, I w- you know, I'm I'm." I'm in Vivek. trouble. Th- yeah, yeah. Oh, no, sorry, VVAC, not here. Oh. Feevec's gone to the office. No, I am Feevec. Yeah. Right? Same thing happened to him. This is the launch commander. No, no, launch commander off off watch. Can't talk to him. I'm the launch commander. Come back and get me. No, no. Mr. Fisher off watch. Can't disturb him. You know, it took him. Yeah. Eventually, they came back and got him. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, man. Um, and a couple of other, you
2: know, incredible stories. The uh, You were one of the first responders for the Po Shan Road landslide, which is alleged, you know, a a big incident that happened in Hong Kong. Um, And you even rescued, you know, a boy, Jules, I think it was. Um, One of the things I think it's hard for non-police officers to understand is what it is like to be the first person that has to run into, you know, uh, sometimes horrific incidents. How was that, you know, experience?
1: Well, I wasn't, the first responder but um i was living nearby um off duty i was in fact um the officer in charge of fanling court uh it was a sunday and i'd been watching the two ronnies on tv and i heard this enormous bang and i rang the upper levels police station they told me there'd been a landslide so i ran up the hill and um the fire brigade was there And I offered my assistance, and I said, yeah, get stuck in. So um, I helped rescue some people who were uh, at the top of the landslide and then later went down uh, on a rope with a few more firemen and uh, ended up rescuing this uh, boy. It took us three and a half hours uh, to to, uh, dig him out.
2: And he lost his mother and his sibling. Yeah, he
1: and uh, he'd been on a flat with his mother and his younger brother and a dog and uh, a, um, a lawyer um, and uh, they'd only unluckily just come back from having dinner and uh, the lawyer heard this enormous rumbling saw some movement on the hillside and told him to run and um, Jules ended up uh chasing the dog and and was saved by a bookcase that fell on top of him Uh, his younger brother was killed his mother survived for a while and then drowned in the mud i believe and uh, the lawyer survived and was eventually rescued by firemen and british army after they dug a tunnel to get to him yeah and I uh, just think sixty-eight people were killed in that that landslide, but and I mean, there was another terrible landslide uh, over the harbour at Sao Maoping, where I think a fifty people in a squatter settlement were engulfed by a collapsing man-made slope.
2: It's something that's happened a few times in the history of uh, Hong Kong, but that Po Shan road one was particularly bad.
1: Yeah, it was. Very dramatic, and um, unfortunately it had its roots in corruption, I'm sure, because um, a developer wanted to redevelop an old house and put up a 12 or 13 block of flats, and the government had said, yes, you can do that, but you must provide uh, car parks within the building. In other words, and there was a height restriction. So when they did that, that meant there were less flats And they decided that they were not going to do that. They were going to pretend that there was enough space on the plot uh, to provide the car parking. And they then illegally cut the slope at the back of the plot, claiming it, it was rock, when it wasn't, it was earth. So they cut that, and then it started to fall down because of heavy rain. Residents complained. The uh, building's department, the uh, public works department, then inspected it and threw a fit, you know, oh my goodness, you know, and told them they've got to put in sheet piling to protect it. it was too late. So um, there was a landslide on the, on the site. Uh, uh, this is after a week of extremely heavy rain. I mean, unbelievably heavy rain. Uh, part of it collapsed and it uh, buried a... Building on the other side of uh, um, Conduit, Conduit Road, yeah, and then they thought, "Oh, that's okay. There's no nothing more is going to happen." And everybody, including the director of public works, left. And then it collapsed at nine o'clock that night. The whole of the hillside above Posan Road slipped, uh, took away uh, a garden and a garage on Posan Road took away the um the building on condit road and then hit uh the building in Cobal road 13 stories 26 flats i presume and knocked it clean over and um luckily it didn't go on further there was another building site in babington path into which it collapsed but it could have had a domino, effect. Oh. Yeah.
0: Can you imagine if you were a property agent just taking a client to look at flats, and you're like, "Oh, uh, yeah, this is a big discount." Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: I don't look at that one. They, they, they built that one differently.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is we're doing with the more uh, surreal style of, of development.
2: I mean, I know that being a police officer, you know, being in high, uh, ten, highly tense situations is, is more common than for the average Joe, but. That must be so overwhelming to walk into that. I mean, you yeah. might. Do you remember just seeing it when you first? Yeah, got it there? was.
1: Um, it was pretty awful, but um, you know, there was obviously a job that needed to be done. And um, but I remember the for for weeks after I could the smell of the mud and what was mixed up in the mud, uh, sewage, gas, everything else uh, was unforgettable. You know. Uh, still remember it today, um, pretty awful. But I'm pretty convinced of the the basic reason that that happened.
2: So just to lighten it up a little bit, um, the, you were involved in the first rally in mainland China, I think, right? Well, it
1: was the Hong Kong to Beijing rally, which I think ran for about four years, and I was involved for two of them. And um, basically, um, we because it's a moving rally, We had uh, what we called six special stage marshal teams with four vehicles and three guys in each vehicle. And those included uh, a doctor, a paramedic, uh, a radio technician and a motor mechanic. And, uh, And we would run the special stages across China. Um, what an incredible way yeah. to see
2: China. At that point, what year were we talking?
1: Uh, 90, in my case, 93, 94, I think.
2: So still relatively, adult, just opening up mm, really. Yeah,
1: yeah. Fascinating. Very, very hard work. Very, very tiring. Uh, we, we hardly got any sleep or hardly got anything to eat, you know, before we were rushing off to the next stage. But, um, yeah, um, I remember one incident when we arrived in uh beijing the the, our last stage was up at the great wall of china and then we had to join a long stream of uh rally vehicles and um the organizers um had become quite concerned that a lot of our vehicles didn't make it to beijing because of mechanical problems or accidents or whatever and um we had uh So they'd, uh, yeah, they put a, they'd said, a bounty. You get $1,000 bounty if you bring a vehicle back in more or less one piece to Beijing so that they could sell them on. And um, so this particular year, we'd almost made it, but our doctor managed to run over a rock and split the sump. And so we lost one vehicle. And another team were crowing about that. And they were in front of us in the queue to enter Tiananmen Square. Having and come all the way from Hong Kong. Millions of people, you know, watching this, lining us and cheering and clapping and God knows what. And um, I suppose the team in front of us uh, lost attention because at some point uh, they, the front vehicle had to slam the brakes on and all the other three ran into the back of each other. So in the, in within the space of two seconds, they lost $4,000. <laughs> and we thought this was hilarious, and so did the crowd. <laughs> um, they, they absolutely went bananas, yeah.
2: Four grand back then was, was a bigger a deal. Yeah, you 90. could buy six apartments in Hong Kong yeah. for that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. I can't thank you enough for sharing the stories it's really been fascinating thank you so much for coming on today
1: well I've enjoyed this quite an experience yes thank you